0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show.
1: Hold up.
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. Many of us read books, but how often do you wonder where the author got their inspiration? Sometimes the stories behind what influenced them is absolutely fascinating. Take Stephen King and *The Shining*. In 1970, closed for the season, so he and his wife were the only guests in this vast building, spending the night alone in room 217. As he slept, King had terrifying nightmares about his three-year-old son being chased through the corridors of the hotel by a fire hose. He woke up, drenched in sweat, lit a cigarette, and began writing what was to become a horror classic. There was one particular night that influenced the writing of American crime mystery writer James Elroy, and that was the murder of his mother, Geneva Hilliker. He was just a small boy when his mother was found dead, left by the side of the road. Not unlike the Black Dahlia, another huge influence on his writing. Geneva had been strangled with her own stockings. He called it the classic late-night body dump. The death was violent and sensational, much like his writing style would become. It would haunt him his whole life. What happened that night in 1958? This week I'll explore... The murder of writer James Elroy's mother, Geneva Hilliker, also known as Jean Elroy. James Elroy is our modern-day Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett. Elroy has a very distinctive writing style. In his words, he called it a heightened pastiche of jazz slang, cop patois, creative profanity, and drug vernacular. It's a style that is direct, Shorter rather than longer sentence style that's declarative and ugly, and right there punching you in the nards. In Elroy's novels, the men are men. They're tough and brutal, and the women are dames and broads and not to be trusted. Corruption is everywhere. He's most famous for his 1990 novel, L.A. Confidential, which then became an award-winning film starring Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger. It harkens back to the days of old Hollywood noir films, with its hard-boiled detectives, beautiful damaged women, and the lies that surround them. Two major events would mold James Elroy, the murder of his mother and that of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia. And even though they occurred years apart and are not connected, it's easy to see why Elroy connects them in his mind. Both have elements of sex, violence, and mystery. Elizabeth Short's dismembered body was found in a lot by a mother and her child. And Geneva Hilliker was found by a baseball troop by the side of the road. Each of these women had a dubious past with men. Elizabeth Short came to Hollywood to seek stardom, only to have to resort to sex work to make ends meet. Geneva Hilliker was a single mother who had many lovers. Both women most likely met their ends at the hands of one of the men in their company. In the 1940s and 50s, women were not supposed to be in control of sex. If you were, you were considered a whore. So these women both had a tarnished image. Sex was dirty then, and if sex was linked to both of these deaths, it made them all the more sensational and intriguing to this young boy. James was only 10 when his mother was murdered, and they weren't on the best of terms, so her death forever haunted him. So, what happened that day? Let's first learn a little bit about his mother. Geneva Odelia Hilliker was born in 1915, the daughter of Earl Hilliker, local drinker and hellraiser. Earl worked as a state conservation warden in Monroe County, Wisconsin until he was fired after being found drunk on the job. When Earl's wife left him, she took their two daughters with her. However, she stayed close with her ex's sister, Norma. Norma had a very successful hair salon, and her husband ran a thriving supermarket. And Norma was a firecracker. She allegedly had an affair with the local Methodist minister. And she was a big influence on her niece, Geneva. The two became extremely close. Geneva was a bright child who grew into be a very smart young adult and after she graduated high school in 1934 she decided to pursue a career in nursing and when she was accepted to nursing school in chicago norma paid all her tuition and expenses geneva now going by jean moved to oak park illinois the stunning redhead was a dedicated student but she knew how to have some fun She and a roommate made a habit of sneaking out of their dorm to party and to meet boys. But it never affected her studies. She graduated in 1937 as a registered nurse. She then got an apartment with her girlfriends, one of whom secretly registered her picture into a beauty contest. And to her surprise, Jean won America's Most Charming Redhead. The prize was a trip to Hollywood, one that made a very lasting impression. After the girls parted ways, Jean moved out to Los Angeles. Jean's love life was a bit reminiscent of her aunt's. She had reportedly had an abortion at age 24 and then was briefly married to a man named Spalding. In 1941, she was working as a stenographer while working towards getting her nurse's certification when she met Armand Elroy. He had deserted his own wife Mildred to move in with Jean, Armand's claim to fame was being the one-time accountant of Rita Hayworth and also her rumored lover. When both of the divorces were finalized, Armand and Jean married in 1947, the same year as the murder of the Black Dahlia. Jean was 32 and two and a half months pregnant. Their son James was then born in 1948. However, the marriage eventually fell apart Jean filed for divorce in 1955 on the grounds of extreme cruelty. James said they had stayed together for 15 years. It had to be sex. She got the car, furniture, and custody of James through the school months and part of the summer. His father got two weekly visits, some summertime, as well as paying $50 a month in child support. It was a contentious divorce. He said she was a drunk and a sex fiend, and she said he spied on her all the time and even snuck into her apartment. James frequently fought with his mom. He preferred his dad, and at that age, all boys idolized their fathers. And when he told her he wanted to live with his dad, she struck him across the face. He said, I issued the curse. I summoned her dead. She was murdered three months later. I hated her because I wanted her in unspeakable ways. On June 22, 1958, the body of a fair, red-headed woman in her 40s was found in an ivy patch just a few inches from the curb by some boys coming back from baseball practice. Her right arm was bent upward, resting above her head, and her left arm was bent with her hand clutched her legs crudely outstretched. One of her nylon stockings was bunched at her ankle and the other was bound tightly about her neck. And it was clear that something sexual had occurred by her disheveled clothes, her missing girdle and underwear, and the unfastened bra above her breasts. Her coat was draped across her lower body and there was bruising on her inner thighs. It was not clear as to whether the sex was consensual or not but it was very crystal clear that it was murder. Not only was a stocking around her neck, but there was a cotton cord also tightly bound. Her murderer had left her to be found within feet of a school property. The coroner's deputy said she was probably dead eight to 12 hours and judging by the dew on her body, she'd been dumped possibly before sunrise. She had a small amount of blood on her right palm which was possibly hers or the perpetrator's. There was also a deep laceration near the center of her forehead. One possible identification marker was a missing right nipple from an old surgical amputation. There was no ID found on or near the victim. All they knew was that there was a victim around 135 pounds, 66 inches, who'd been strangled so hard that the end of the cord had broken off around her neck and the stocking accompanying it matched the one on her ankle. A radio bulletin had been put out with the woman's description in the hopes that someone could ID her. And not long after, the El Monte PD got a call from a woman saying she thought this might be her tenant. Anna Mae Cricky said her tenant left the night before around 8 p.m. and never returned. Her tenant was Jean Elroy. She lived with her 10-year-old son, James, in a stone bungalow in her backyard. By the description of her dress, it sounded like Jean. Mrs. Crickey recalled that Jean had once shown her a scar on her breast, too. Luckily, that weekend, James was staying with his father. He arrived to the scene alone in a cab. He seemed to take the news of his mother's death well. There's an infamous picture of him taken not long after the news. By the look on his face, you'd never know that his mother had just been murdered. He's just a young boy standing alone staring directly into the camera. He showed no emotion. James said his father was still at the bus depot waiting to head back to Los Angeles. There, the police found Armand, who had his story confirmed by his son. He'd picked James up at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning, and he didn't encounter his ex. From there, they took a bus to his apartment in Los Angeles. They ate dinner and they went to bed early. The next day, they slept late. They ate lunch downtown and then caught the bus back to El Monte. He then put James in a cab to his mother's and he waited for the bus back. Armand was very upfront with police about how much he did not get along with his ex. He told police that she was a promiscuous lush, and she lied about everything including her age and their son had found her with several different men he thought she moved to el monte to possibly escape a bad relationship and there was certainly no love lost there james was then released to his father's custody and he remembers feeling happiness but as he grew older he was troubled by his mother's murder his only solace was reading He read The Badge by Jack Webb and other crime novels, and he then became obsessed with the case of the Black Dahlia, perhaps because of the parallels to his mother. He later dropped out of high school, and in his teens and early 20s, he drank like a horse, and he abused drugs like benzodrugs and inhalers. He soon got into petty crime like shoplifting, and that led to burglary. After spending some time in jail, he got pneumonia, and an abscess on his lung, quote, the size of a large man's fist. That caused him to give up drinking, and then he soon began writing. His first book, Brown's Requiem, was published in 1981, and he soon became, as he would say, the demon dog of American crime fiction. His stripped-down staccato style came about when his editor asked him to shorten the book L.A. Confidential by more than 100 pages. He didn't want to remove any subplots, so he cut every unnecessary word from every sentence. This created a very unique form of prose. Some of his more popular works are the L.A. Quartet, which consists of the books Black Dahlia, Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. His style of writing was dubbed postmodern, historiographic, metafiction. In many of his books, he's exercising his demons from his past. Eventually, he decided to look into his mother's death, getting help from Bill Stoner, a retired L.A. investigator. They were able to get a hold of the actual police files from his mother's death. And after 15 months of investigation, Elroy then wrote the memoir, My Dark Places, from which I pulled much of my information from this podcast. Shortly after Gene's body was discovered, Her car was found about two miles from the dump site and one mile from her home at a place called the Desert Inn. The car was found unlocked with about a dozen empty beer cans littering the back seat, but no latent fingerprints were found. Women who worked at the inn's bar said that they remembered Jean, but she wasn't a regular there. That night, she was accompanied by a small man with a thin face and black hair. They were the last patrons leaving at about 2 a.m. Another patron at the bar that night said the redhead arrived around 1045 with a heavy-set blonde and a ponytail who was around 40 years old. They were later joined by a Mexican-looking man around 35 to 40, 5 foot 8 to 6 feet tall. He had dark hair with a widow's peak and a swarthy complexion, a dark suit and a white shirt. He seemed like he knew the women. They also talked to a drunk regular, whose alibi in the drunk tank ruled him out as the killer. He said he thought the man in the suit's name might be Tommy.
2: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
0: An autopsy was performed on Jean Elroy. The cause of death was asphyxia due to strangulation by ligature. White carpet fibers were found under her nails. Her head had been struck six times. She might have been unconscious when she was strangled, and she'd engaged in intercourse despite being on her period. A tampon was found at the rear of her vaginal vault. And her last meal was one to two hours before her death, possibly Mexican due to the beans, meat, and cheese. So, the mystery was, who was this ponytail blonde and the swarthy man? Police canvassed area restaurants with a picture of Jean. One woman came forward named LaVon Chambers, saying she remembered serving the couple. and She actually served them twice, once Saturday night and again Sunday morning. The first time was around 10 p.m. She said the lady got a grilled cheese and the man got coffee. They were in a two-tone green sedan. The man fit the description. He was 35 to 40 with dark black hair combed back. And he was either Greek or Italian by her thoughts. She said the woman seemed tipsy and the man just seemed bored. They returned around 2 a.m. And this time the woman got beans and chili he once again got coffee. The second visit, the condition of the woman's clothing was a bit disheveled. She said her breast was almost out of her dress. The police surmised that there may have been some heavy petting going on between the couple. The woman still seemed to be in a good mood, but the man still seemed bored. The police got a tip from a man named Archie Rogers. He said he knew a guy and a girl fitting the description of the ponytail and the swarthy man. It was Bill Owen, a painter and a mechanic who used to live with his sister. The woman's name was Dorothy, and Dorothy had mentioned to him about having a friend named Jean, who she planned to bring to her sister's house. But there was no record for a Dorothy Hotchkiss, and William Owen came back six times over. There were many Owens that had criminal records, but none lived in the area. It was all put into a file and stashed away. Jean Elroy was buried at Inglewood Cemetery. Her son did not attend the funeral. The story made the news for a hot minute, but it was then overtaken by the sensational Johnny Stompanato case. He was the boyfriend of movie star Lana Turner, who had been stabbed by her young daughter Cheryl Crane when he tried to attack her mother The case was now going cold. Every suspect came up a dead end. They even apprehended serial killer Harvey Glattman, the Lonely Hearts Killer. He moved to Los Angeles in 1957. Glattman would contact modeling agencies and offer work for Pulp Fiction magazines as a photographer, where he would tie them up, sexually assault them while he took their pictures. And afterward, he would strangle them and dump them in the desert. Despite looking good for this crime, he was ruled out as a suspect. The case went colder than cold. In March of 1994, James Elroy flew out to California to see his mother's murder file. Murders, one of which happened to be his mother's. James knew he had to see his mother's file pitched a story idea to GQ magazine about looking into the murder. His friend Frank made arrangements for him to meet with Bill Stoner and Bill McComas, both sergeants at Sheriff's Unsolved. Stoner and Elroy got on immediately, probably due to Stoner's penchant for saying fuck as much as Elroy did. He braced himself for the contents of his mother's file. It contained the expected, the information given by LaVon Chambers, the questioning and rolling out of Harvey Glattman, but it was harder for him to read the autopsy report. James made note of any facts that stood out to him. And there were many pictures of male mugshots, men fitting the description of this worthy man. The hardest thing to digest were the photos of his dead mother. It would be impossible to forget seeing the insect bites on her arms, the stocking around her neck, and his mother on the morgue slab. After leaving, he wrote the article for GQ, but it just wasn't enough. His quest for answers was like a fever, so he decided to turn it all into a book. He contacted Bill Stoner again, and he asked him to help investigate his mother's death, and he agreed. Stoner had a theory. The two were out on a date, and the swarthy man wanted sex. But since she was on her period, she refused. She only gave in to necking and some fondling. The swarthy man suggested that they go on a drive. He demanded sex, and she once again refused. And that's when he hit her on the head six times. He raped her, jamming the tampon back into the back of her vagina. He panicked so she could ID him. He strangled her, and he dumped her body. It all made sense. For the first time, Elroy was given access to things like her dress and the ligatures used to strangle her. This was more than a file. It was a connection to her. He held them all to his face, trying to get his mother's scent, and it was heartbreaking. He was once again the 10-year-old boy who lost his mother. Since the investigation would take time, Elroy got an apartment at Newport Beach, and one morning he got a message from Stoner. Bill had found a connection in a file to a murder with shocking similarities to his mother's. On January 23, 1959, Elspeth Bobby Long was found beaten and strangled with a nylon stocking on a road in La Puente, which was only four miles from El Monte. Her body was found in dirt between a road and a fence, and she was lying with her coat across her legs just like Jean had been found. Like Jean, Bobby was 45 to 50, living alone, and frequently seeing various men. One happened to be a guy with slick back hair who drove a white and turquoise car. But in the reports, the investigators had a hard time finding any info or anyone who knew of any guy with slick back hair in her circle. And her autopsy report was almost a blow by blow of Jean's death by asphyxiation, skull fractured in four places, semen found, and a partially digested meal of beans and rice in her stomach. Since Bobby's garments were in place, it was thought that the sex was consensual, unlike Jean's, who were disheveled, leading to the speculation of rape. The most startling thing about Bobby was that she was blonde. Was this the mystery blonde that Jean was seen with that night? Bobby liked to gamble at the track, and she even had a bookie. She'd been married twice. But just like Jean's case, the leads all turned up nothing. James Elroy couldn't help thinking that Bobby's case would lead to answers in his mother's. They were intertwined. In his gut, he felt that she was the mystery blonde. Stoner and Elroy found that following up leads so many years later was proving difficult. Many of those involved were gone by now. Still alive was Levon Chambers, the waitress who served James's mother and the swarthy man that fateful night. The men tracked her down, hoping that there was some detail that she could recall that was omitted in the original report. Even though she remembered the case vividly, there weren't any pertinent details that she could add. Regretfully, she admitted that carhops were supposed to take down license plate numbers with orders. It was done to help find check dodgers. But she was lax in doing so, which prevented anyone from knowing the license on the two-tone car of the swarthy man. She said she never regretted anything so much in her life. Lavon was unable to provide any additional information, which proved disappointing. They then tracked down Mr. and Mrs. Crickey, now living in Utah near the Arizona border. Mrs. Crickey ushered them into her living room to discuss her former tenant, Jean. The last time she had seen James, her son was a toddler. Now he was 49 years old. Time had flown. She still remembered the Jane, the day Jean responded to the newspaper ad for the little house. She had said, I think this place will be safe. The two women had gotten along well, as she recalled. And even though Mrs. Crickey always declared Jean never drank, Mr. Crickey remembered smelling liquor on her breath and finding bottles around the house. In reality, she was a heavy drinker. Mrs. Crickey was the one who identified James's mother's corpse in the morgue. And in the end, she told the same story that she had told all those years ago. Jean went out Saturday night like she did most weekends but she never returned home. But before they left, out of earshot of her husband, Mrs. Crickey told one story she'd never divulged to anyone. The year was 1952, and she was separated from her first husband. She had gone out with a guy named John Lopresti, whose family owned the local supermarket. At that time, he was around 30, with an olive complexion and dark hair. One night, they went out on a date, dancing. Afterward, he pulled the car over in the hills and he made some moves on her. When she resisted, he slapped her and he pulled at her clothes. It was an attempted rape that ended in premature ejaculation. Because she was in a custody battle at the time, she never reported the incident to police. But she had warned Jean about him when she saw the two together years later. So was this a possible lead? Stoner and Elroy drove back to look into this possible suspect. However, they couldn't find any Lopresti market that was in the neighborhood at that time. Could Mrs. Creaky be wrong? The only John Lopresti that they were able to track down lived in a trailer park in Duarte, California, three miles north of El Monte, And sadly to them, he didn't fit the description. Elroy described him as having blue eyes and thick features. Even though he wasn't their man, since El Monte was his hangout, they pressed him for possible names, but they came away with nothing. Before they left, Elroy couldn't help but mention the unfortunate incident with Mrs. Cricky, making the man cringe. The men even went so far as to hire a criminal profiler named Carlos Avila to do an assessment of the case. Avila thought the man probably knew both Jean and Bobby to some degree. His calling card seemed to be the sex acts, blunt force trauma, and the strangulation using the women's stockings, and then covering their lower bodies with their coats. Because most crimes are intra racial, meaning white on white or black on black, the suspect would be white. He would most likely be single average to above average in intelligence and employed. The area where he dumped the bodies is most likely very familiar to him. He probably lived or worked near there, so being seen in the area could be easily explained. The man was confident with women, even controlling. The only criminal history might be domestic abuse. Avila thought the murders weren't premeditated. Even with a criminal profile, a 1-800 tip line and fresh eyes on the case, it went the way it did the first time, which was nowhere. They had worked 15 months, followed up promising leads only to have them stop at dead ends. James eventually went back home, but Bill Stoner stayed on the case. The TV show Unsolved Mysteries featured Gene's case in a segment. Calls rolled in like crazy. Everyone thought the swarthy man was their father, their ex, a man in their neighborhood. It only seemed to give false hope. And although he didn't come any closer to solving her murder, James felt he had accomplished some things. When his mother was murdered, he was just a child. And as an adult with life experience, you're not as hard on your parents as your child self. And this was definitely the case with him. He realized that his mother did the best that she could with him, and if she was running from anything or anyone, it was most likely his father, who was constantly spying on her. Being a divorced mother is not an easy job any time, especially in the 1950s. Yeah, maybe she drank too much, but it never hindered her care for her son or her life in any way. And as far as the men she dated, well, I think she just had lousy taste in men and she never found the right one. I think a lot of us can attest to that. The last page of his memoir really sums it up best. He said, it wasn't enough. It was a momentary pause and a spark point. I had to know more. I had to honor my debt and pursue my claim. My will to look and learn was still strong and perversely attuned. I was my father crouched outside my mother's bedroom window. I didn't want it to end. I wouldn't let it end. I didn't want to lose her again. King's Row was just a window facing backward. The swarthy man was just a witness with a few memories. I was a detective with no official sanction and no evidential rules to restrict me. I could take implication and rumor and hold them as fact. I could travel her life at my own mental speed. I could linger at Tunnel City and Almonte and all points in between. I could grow old in my search. I will not let this end. I will not betray her or abandon her again. I think this is very poignant with this being Mother's Day, especially for those of us who have complicated relationships with our mothers. In our youth, it's very easy to judge our parents in their actions, and their lives. And as adults, that focus becomes a lot clearer. While we may not always approve of some of our parents' actions, I think we can at least understand them. And understanding is half the battle. However she is remembered, whether it be Geneva Hilliger or Jean Elroy, the hot redhead nurse, or the woman found dead on the sidewalk, she will always be one thing to one man, and that's mother. So that was the story of the murder of writer James Elroy's mother. If you can, watch the documentary about this case called The Feast of Death. And that's where I first heard about the case. James Elroy is really a character and something to see. I'm always interested in what shapes a person, whether it's a killer or a writer. We're all majorly shaped by our parents and our relationships with them. And in his case, you can see how complex and dark it can be. These past few weeks have been very monumental in true crime with the capture of the Golden State Killer. Check out Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Once again, I have to say she was such a force in writing about this case. And there are also a lot of good domestic for him too. Case File did I think a three-part episode on him and season 2 of Criminology is just strictly devoted to it. And if you ever want to discuss the case and or how much everyone loves Paul Holes, and me, hit me up. Thank you to everyone who has contacted me this week with a case idea or to say how much you like the show. That totally makes my day. Check out Redrum Blonde on Twitter. My handle there is at @blonderedrum. I'm on Instagram and there's a Facebook group and a group just for Red Rum Blonde. As always, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a good review. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice
2: things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.